Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. I can't believe it's already season three. I am very excited about the episodes I have planned for this season, and I hope you will be too. But before I get this first episode of season one going, I need a favor. If you like this podcast, if you love this podcast, I'd love for you to take a few minutes out of your day today and review the podcast on your podcast player of choice. Rating the podcast is one of the best things you can do to support my work, and it only takes a few minutes. Want to be an even better friend of the pod? Share the pod with your friends on LinkedIn, or connect with me on LinkedIn, or both. Today, I'm talking about one of the most spectacular company implosions of the past 25 years, Enron. Ugh, Enron. The name is synonymous with failure, with hubris, with arrogance and deception. Enron is a punchline for a lot of jokes. And there's a joke I saw referenced in a couple of books I read that goes kind of like this. Two Enron auditors walk into a bar. The bartender says, hey, tell me, did capitalism fail Enron or did Enron fail capitalism? As one does. The first auditor, after ordering a whiskey sour, says, capitalism is when you have two cows. You sell one cow and buy a bull. That helps you grow your herd and you retire on that income. The second auditor says, after ordering a double whiskey sour, that Enron capitalism is when you have two cows, you sell three cows to your publicly listed company using letters of credit opened by your brother-in-law at the bank, you then execute a debt equity swap with an associate general offer so that you get all four cows back with a tax exemption for five cows. Then you transfer the milk rights of six cows via an intermediary to a Cayman Islands company secretly owned by the majority shareholder of your publicly listed company who sells the rights to all seven cows back to your publicly listed company. The annual report to shareholders says that the company owns eight cows with an option for one more. As they finish their drinks, the bartender says, wow, so what did you do? The first auditor says, I spoke up. My company said, thanks, and then fired me. The second auditor says, after ordering a second whiskey sour, well, of course, I went to work for Enron. I didn't say the jokes were particularly funny, guys. Sorry. <laughs> when the company filed for bankruptcy in late 2001, Enron was the largest corporate bankruptcy in history. It didn't hold that honor for very long. It was a bad year for big companies. Here was a company, Enron, that was the seventh largest in the country with more than 20,000 employees. They went from a $10 billion company to a $65 billion company in less than 16 years. This is the story of how creativity can sometimes mean stupidity, how culture impacts a company's survival, 
how hiring decisions matter, how ideas mutate, and how companies that put stock price and profits above all else can easily be the architects of their own demise, and how blind people can be about a lot of things if what they're doing is making money. Who was responsible for Enron? What were the major causes of its bankruptcy? Who spoke up and who listened or didn't? And what insurance responds when half your executives are being criminally charged and the shareholders and creditors are suing everyone they can think of? I thought I knew a lot about Enron before I started researching this episode. I really didn't. And I learned a lot about some lines of insurance most of us never deal with and what happened to that insurance. Before I get started, I wanted to touch upon some of the sources I used in case you were interested. Of course, I have a more complete list of sources in my show notes, but to say that there have been a lot of things written about Enron would be an enormous understatement. There has been so much written about Enron, it can be hard to get through even a quarter of it. For this podcast, I primarily relied on three books for the nuts and bolts of what happened with Enron. The Smartest Guys in the Room by Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind, which became a documentary of the same name, but the book is far more detailed. Conspiracy of Fools by Kurt Eichenwald. Eichenwald is kind of a problematic writer these days, but this book dates from before that. And here you're going to have to imagine what the word is because I'm going to have to bleep something. The Chicken Club by Jesse Eisinger, which is more about the government's actions in going after Enron. Of course, there are also numerous law articles, economist papers, and the related, but these three books are a great introduction. The easiest way to explain Enron and how it eventually became a $65 billion company before going bankrupt is to start with the career of one person, Kenneth Lay, the CEO. Lay was born in Missouri. His father was an unsuccessful businessman and only slightly more successful Baptist preacher. There was no indication from Lay's upbringing that he would ever make much more of himself, but he was a good student, attending the University of Missouri after high school. It was at Mizzou that he discovered his love of economics. The story of Enron is full of people with degrees in economics who should have known better, which, well, we like to hire economics majors in insurance, too, so all I'll say here is buyer beware. After college, probably to avoid being drafted into the infantry during the Vietnam War, Lay joined the Navy officer program. His economics degree did him some good there because he was assigned to work with the Navy comptroller and the assistant secretary of the Navy. At the same time, he pursued a Ph.D. in economics at the University of Houston. When Lay left the military, he served in several roles at various energy companies, including Exxon, Florida Gas, and Transco Energy, steadily moving up the ladder. He also spent some time in Washington, working for the Federal Power Commission and as the Deputy Undersecretary of Energy for the Department of the Interior. During his time in Washington, Lay worked on energy policy. Before the 1990s, literally every single step in the process of buying, making, and selling gas was regulated by the government. Lay believed that the key to improving U.S. energy policy was to deregulate the gas industry. He believed that free markets were always preferable to a market where the government was making the decisions, 
and that the free market would work better than what was currently in place. Eventually, Lay became the CEO of a company called Houston Natural Gas, or HNG. A year later, in 1985, HNG merged with another oil and gas company called Internorth. Lay became the CEO of the new combined company, and after much debate, the company was rechristened Enron. From all accounts, Lay was one of those people it was hard not to like. And that was a quality he deliberately cultivated. He loved connecting with people, and he loved that other people viewed him as a kind of power broker. While Lay was well-liked at Enron as well, that didn't mean he was entirely respected. His management style was described as ready, fire, aim, meaning that he approved ideas with little or no understanding of how to execute those ideas. He hated confrontation of any type, and he had a strong sense of personal entitlement as he used his position at Enron to give jobs to family members and award contracts to friends. He also had no compunction about using Enron company planes as personal vehicles for his entire extended family. All that was going to eventually contribute to Enron's downfall, but before I get there, I should touch upon the person who I think was primarily responsible, Jeff Skilling. Skilling came to Enron originally as a consultant for McKinsey & Company. He grew up in Illinois, and in high school, he worked a part-time job at a local TV station as an engineer. I only mention this because his older brother, Tom, was working at the TV station as a weatherman. And if you're from Illinois, you'll know who Tom Skilling is. He's practically an institution here. But for Jeff, the TV world wasn't his goal. No, Jeff was a kid with a lot of ambition. He graduated from Southern Methodist University with a full scholarship, of course, and then attended Harvard Business School. As a person, he was a bit, well, he was a lot. Probably the most famous story about Skilling is that during his interview with a Harvard admissions counselor, he was asked if he was smart. Skilling's response, I'm f smart. Of course, this impressed them. That attitude continued even after he was indicted. After he graduated from Harvard Business School, he joined McKinsey & Company as a consultant. And Skilling was one of the McKinsey consultants brought in to help with combining Houston Natural Gas and Internorth. In 1985, when HNG and Internorth became Enron, there had been some deregulation of the oil and gas industry, and as a result, the price of natural gas was no longer regulated by the government. The cost was now dependent on the market. This meant that companies buying and selling gas had a lot more uncertainty. Sure, sometimes it worked in their favor, but it was hard to estimate future costs for buyers or how much gas they should produce. Skilling had a brilliant idea while he was consulting at Enron that he thought could reduce that uncertainty. He wanted to create a business that served, as he described it, as a type of bank to these customers. This energy trading business slash bank would buy and sell long-term, fixed-price natural gas contracts. And that way, buyers would lock in their pricing for 10 or 20 years or more. And sellers would know exactly how much natural gas to produce for the same period. Enron would be the middleman and would make money off each side of the transaction. When Skilling presented this idea to Enron's executives in 1987, he did it in a way that was pretty indicative of his personality. He only used one slide and spoke for less than 30 minutes. Lay, Enron's CEO, was struggling with how Enron should navigate this new era of deregulation. 
and Skilling's idea sounded good to him. So Skilling, still working as a McKinsey consultant, helped Enron start to implement this idea. In the beginning, no surprise, it was a mess. So after much convincing, Lay finally got Skilling to leave McKinsey in 1990 and join Enron. Skilling became the chairman and CEO of Enron Finance, a department that would pursue this energy bank concept. Now, mind you, Skilling had never worked anywhere but McKinsey. He'd never executed a business plan, only created them. However, he got to work enthusiastically building out his team at Enron Finance. Skilling was arrogant, always right, and pretty abrasive, and he looked for that in his employees. He used to say he liked guys with spikes. Quite quickly, Skilling's responsibilities expanded as more parts of Enron came under his managerial control and he executed more new business ideas. By 1997, he was president and chief operating officer of the entire company, with only lay above him in the organization. From the time Skilling joined the company in 1990, he and Lay set about transforming Enron and expanding its scope and reach. Lay wanted to grow, and he was willing to let anyone do just about anything to get there. In return, Skilling exhibited almost open contempt for Lay, which Lay seemed to brush off. If Enron was primarily a hard asset company before Skilling, meaning they owned things like pipelines, Skilling wanted to expand into areas that did not require hard assets. The primary area of growth for Enron after 1990 was in Skilling's energy trading and things associated with energy trading. For example, Enron had this great idea to trade bandwidth in the early days of the internet, which sounds frankly stupid to me now, but it also entered into a 20-year partnership with Blockbuster to provide video on demand, which sounds a little more familiar. Every time they announced one of these big initiatives, Enron's stock would shoot up. In the case of the deal with Blockbuster, Enron's stock increased 30% in just two days. The problem was that the people at Enron had big ideas, and Skilling and Lay loved a big idea. But they didn't really care if the idea had been researched or, frankly, how it would be executed after it was in motion. And in the case of Blockbuster, that was glaringly obvious. The Blockbuster deal would be dead in the water fairly quickly. Enron didn't understand the movie business or bother to learn anything about it before signing the deal. And Blockbuster wasn't able to secure movie rights from the various studios. The only content Blockbuster was able to obtain were lowbrow sex comedies and how-to videos, not exactly what anyone had envisioned. Eight months after the deal was announced, it was all over. And this was pretty much how things at Enron went. It was better to ask forgiveness than permission. People made huge deals all the time with no chain of approval, no need to create a business plan, and no market research. It didn't even matter how much you spent on getting the deal, either. And that was partly Enron's culture, partly skilling, and mainly how people got paid and Enron booked profit. Because Enron was using some interesting accounting tactics to record profit. And the more profit you bring in, the bigger your bonus. Enron looked like it was making money hand over fist, but they had a growing and worrisome problem, their debt. Lots of companies have debts, even a lot of debts. But it's how Enron chose to handle that debt that got them into a lot of trouble. As I mentioned before, Skilling wanted Enron to be like a bank. In his energy trading business plan, deposits were the natural gas supplies from the energy producers and loans were the long-term pricing contracts sold to the companies that needed that natural gas. 
And the key to making even more money off that, just like the banks, was securitization. Securitization is a process of taking loans, pooling them together, and selling them to investors. So you make money off the loans themselves, and then you make more money off selling them to investors. And if you think to yourself, well, that sounds an awful lot like what banks did with mortgages that led to the financial crisis in 2008, well, you'd be right. Securitization wasn't a new concept in late 1990 when Skilling interviewed a 28-year-old banker named Andrew Fastow. Fastow hadn't been doing securitization for very long. In fact, he hadn't even been in banking for very long. He didn't come from a Wall Street bank or any of the big international banks either. Fastow did have an MBA from Kellogg, a vastly exaggerated resume that no one at Enron even bothered to fact-check, and some very creative ideas about securitization that he shared with Skilling to impress him. So bringing Fastow on with a background in securitization suggested that Skilling and Enron planned on bundling these loan contracts and then selling them to outside investors. And that's not really what happened. It all started kind of innocently enough when Enron asked the California State Pension Fund, or CalPERS for short, to partner with them in a joint venture fund that would invest in oil and gas. CalPERS, if you don't know, is the largest public pension plan in the U.S. and manages hundreds of billions of dollars for its members. This fund they would create would not belong to Enron. It would be something called an off-book or consolidated entity, and Enron and CalPERS would be 50% joint venture partners. This is all legal, and frankly, it's pretty above board. They called it Jedi. Fastow loved Star Wars. But there was one little interesting tidbit about Jedi that would lead to more creative securitization deals in the future. Because Enron had only a 50% interest in Jedi, they were not considered a controlling interest by accounting rules. If you aren't a controlling interest, well, you don't have to include Jedi's assets and liabilities on your balance sheet. The deal made money for both parties, and in 1997, Enron asked CalPERS if they would like to invest in something else with them. CalPERS agreed, but they wanted to exit the Jedi partnership. If CalPERS left Jedi, then Enron would now have 100% interest in that fund, and they would have to report it on their financial statements. This was something Enron didn't want to do because they would have to show the hundreds of millions of dollars of debt they had taken on to buy out CalPERS' interest in Jedi. And here's where things start to go sideways. Fastow had a clever idea that instead of having Enron buy out CalPERS, they could create another off-books entity where Enron owned 50% or less of that entity and have that entity buy out CalPERS. That way, they wouldn't have to show the debt on their balance sheets. The entity they created to buy out CalPERS was called Chuco, after Chewbacca, naturally, and it involved an additional off-books entity that gave, and I use this word with quotes on purpose, Chuco the money to buy out CalPERS. That idea was, uh, it wasn't exactly illegal, but it was, I mean, sneaky, I guess. One off-book entity funded by another off-book entity buys out a third off-book entity? There were rules about how all of this could, in theory, be done legally, and Arthur Anderson and Ron's auditors had gone over those rules with Enron in detail. But Fastow wanted to do two things that Anderson was not enthused by. One, he wanted to invest in Chuco personally. 
and two, he wanted to manage Chuko. He thought he could do both of those things. Guess what? That was a big no-no. And even when Skilling found out and expressed concern, Fastow sneakily did it anyway, mostly through having his wife invest, and she worked for Enron in finance, by the way, and it involved another off-books entity, naturally, and then he had another finance employee manage Chuko. In 1998, Fastow was named CFO, and because it was a promotion based on his record of securitization, you can imagine that he took that, and rightly so, as approval to continue doing what he was doing. Fastow had also started to feel like finance was a second-class citizen at Enron. He saw how much money the traders were making on bonuses and thought he should be in that top echelon of earners, too. He, frankly, wanted to make the finance department a profit center, and I am assuming you can see why that might be a problem when you are CFO. All of this was bad enough, but then at a board meeting in late 1998, there was a sneaky little provision in a huge list of things that Enron wanted the board of directors to approve. This little provision would allow Fastow to tell investors that Enron would guarantee their investment of up to $10 million on these off-book entities. As Kurt Eichenwald said in his book about Enron, Conspiracy of Fools, quote, the directors just handed Fastow a loaded pistol. It would not be long before he pulled the trigger, unquote. For some of these small investors, Fastow and friends now included, that meant that they simply could not lose money. By the time Fastow was done, he had created thousands, like 4,000, of these off-book partnerships. These off-book partnerships can also be called Special Purpose Entities, or SPEs, and you'll see that language used interchangeably in things written about Enron. Some of the SPEs Fastow managed, and while Enron's management had questioned that, he had reassured them it was no big deal, and Skilling had somehow okayed it. He invested in some of the funds, and he made money both from being paid to manage the funds and the funds themselves. One of the most egregious SPE deals was called LJM Partnership, created in 1999. The idea behind this entity was that Fastow wanted to sell Enron assets that were losing money to this entity. And because it was structured in a way that it would never show up on any of Enron's financials, they could move these assets off Enron's books and make Enron's financials look much better. But there were others, like the time Enron sold some offshore energy-producing barges in Nigeria to Merrill Lynch in the fourth quarter with an agreement to buy them back in the next financial year. Or that time Fastow arranged an off-books entity to buy an investment in an internet service provider and then made sure that everyone— including himself and three individual bankers at a British bank called National Westminster, got huge payoffs. In 2000, Lay was 58, and he wanted to retire. It was always expected that Skilling would move into the CEO role eventually. In February 2001, Skilling moved into the CEO role, and Lay became chairman of the board. As a result of Enron's aggressive entry into new markets, as well as their ability to move debt off their books to these entities, their official financials looked amazing. And this was reflected in the stock price. It just kept going up. By August 2000, Enron's shares hit their highest point at $90 per share. Now, mind you, while Enron would claim that the increase in stock price was entirely because of things Enron was doing, well, that's not true. Enron was lucky in the sense that its rise was part of a very long period of economic growth, something like 
107 continuous months of growth. And the late 1990s up until 2001 was the first dot-com bubble, too, which mattered, even if Enron wasn't quite an internet company. I mean, in 1999, the Nasdaq rose by 80%, and the Dow Jones doubled. For Enron, the share price was everything. Not all analysts agreed that the share price should be that high. Well, a lot of them did, though. And one analyst named Jim Chanos thought that someone should look into it who was not him, naturally. He reached out to a Forbes reporter named Bethany McLean, who found herself mightily confused by the public financial statements Enron had released. As a result, she wrote an article called Is Enron Overpriced? To read the article, she's mostly just asking questions. She did say that, quote, the lack of clarity raises a red flag about Enron's pricey stock, unquote. The stock began to slip a little. It's not clear if it was a guilty conscience, the heavy mantle of leadership, or frankly, a mental health issue, but Skilling resigned in August 2001, very unexpectedly. Lay became CEO again. This made shareholders nervous, and the stock began to slip further. Enron started to become unable to outrun its debt. And some people were starting to ask more questions, especially about LJM and other partnerships and about how much money Fastow had made from these things. Sharon Watkins, who had worked for Enron for some time, was reassigned to finance after some years away from that team and, after working through some of the paperwork on these SPEs, was so concerned she took it straight to lay. Some of the SPEs were not doing well, and to rehabilitate them, they'd have to invest more money or put up more Enron stock, and it seemed Fastow's house of cards had run out of steam. Boy, did I mix my metaphors there, sorry. As a result of people at the executive level finally starting to ask some questions, on October 16th of 2001, Enron announced that the third quarter of 2001 had resulted in $638 million in loss. This was most of the write-downs from the SPEs they could no longer escape. This was enormous news. Additionally, the existence and some of the troubling things about the LJM partnership, like Fastow's management of that SPE, were made public in an article by the Wall Street Journal soon after. The reporters had gotten an anonymous tip from someone inside Enron. The SEC, after reading the article, made some noises about investigating the LJM partnerships. Enron's stock fell almost 20% on October 22, 2001. That same day, employees were notified that their retirement and pension plans were moving to a new administrator, and as a result, they would not be able to buy or sell any Enron stock in those plans until the end of November. This didn't stop people who had Enron stock outside the retirement program from selling their Enron stock, and that's what a lot of executives at Enron did, including Lay. On October 23rd, Enron's general counsel and one of the board members after concerns about the off-books partnerships began filtering through the company, scheduled a call with Andrew Fastow where they asked him point-blank how much money he'd personally made on LJM. When Fastow finally answered the number, some $45 million floored them. It's worth noting, as you might suspect, that he had made money off other off-book partnerships and not just LJM, his total to the tune of an excess of $60 million. Fastow finally was fired on October 24th. That night, the new CFO, Jeff McMahon, realized that they were in so much trouble that they needed something like 
2 to $3 billion in cash, which they didn't have just to keep operating. And the banks didn't seem interested in helping anymore. The ball started rolling downhill, and Enron could no longer push it up again. Not only had people within Enron started to ask some very hard questions, but people outside Enron were too. The journalists, the banks, higher-ups at Arthur Anderson, the SEC, and frankly anyone who had dealt with Enron in the past. All of a sudden, there were multiple investigations on multiple fronts all looking at what was being done at Enron. And the stock sank further. Concerned about the future of Enron, Lay then brokered a deal with another much smaller energy company called Dynagy to merge, although in reality, Dynagy was buying Enron. Dynagy was about as far from Enron as it was possible to be for another energy-related company in both operations and culture. This deal, even before all the paperwork was signed, gave Enron some much-needed cash, which they began to spend with impunity. The SEC, who had started investigating Enron, told them that they needed to disclose additional mistakes, my word, on their financials. On November 19th, Enron released a statement that they had revised their last five years of financial statements to show an additional $586 million in losses. The stock sank another 23% the next day. On November 28th, as a result of Enron's disclosures, and after learning that Enron had run through almost all of the cash Dynagy had fronted them, Dynagy backed out of their agreement to buy Enron. The stock dipped to less than $1 a share. The rating agencies, S&P and Moody's, quickly followed with downgrades. Unfortunately for Enron, some of their bank loans required immediate repayment in the case of a downgrade, which meant they were now on the hook for even more money they didn't have. And as a result, that downgrade meant that the energy trading desk could no longer trade. Since it turned out that something like 80% of their revenue came in from the trading operation, this was the death knell. Five days later, on December 2, 2001, Enron filed for bankruptcy. At the same time, they laid off almost all the employees, who were given only 30 minutes' notice to leave. It was at this point that Enron and the other companies helping Enron cover up its mismanagement began getting sued, and the Department of Justice and the SEC started an investigation. Even Congress got involved by having congressional hearings. Looking back, it seems obvious to us that Enron was doing some sketchy things, even illegal things. But it's hard for people who aren't in finance, and I am one of those people, to understand. Like the 2008 financial crisis, it's complicated. But there are a few things that definitely led to these bad decisions on their part that are much easier to understand. I'm not going to hit on everything here. I did want to touch on a couple of the biggest problems. First, Jeff Skilling insisted that Enron move from a standard accounting process to something called mark-to-market accounting. This was one of Skilling's big new ideas when he came up with the idea of the energy bank. Before he was ever an employee at Enron, and Skilling had made it clear to Lay that he would not join the company unless he was able to use this accounting method for his department. Originally, this change was only supposed to be made to the trading desk operations, that energy bank that Skilling oversaw, but over time, as he picked up more and more responsibility in the company, mark-to-market accounting began to infect other parts of Enron until much of their business was using it. Deciding to use this method rather than a more standard accounting system was, honestly, what led to a lot of Enron's other issues. Mark-to-market accounting is typically used by organizations like investment banks or other entities that invest primarily, even exclusively, in liquid assets. That doesn't mean oil, that just means something that's easily bought and sold, unlike, say, a power plant, which is a bit harder to unload. This is because investment banks typically invest in the stock market. 
And since stock prices fluctuate, it can be difficult to account for their value on a balance sheet or end-of-year public financial statement. The logical thing to do is to record the value of the stock at the time you are doing your financial statement, since that's what you can sell the stock for at that moment in time. And that valuation is independent of your company. You aren't choosing the value. The stock market is determining the value. If the assets or liabilities go up or down in value, you can adjust your balance sheet accordingly. This is the basis of mark-to-market accounting. But Enron wasn't an investment bank, even as Skilling liked to pretend it was, though it is important to note when asked by analysts, reporters, and even auditors, Skilling always said that Enron was a logistics company, which, yeah, I mean, they were great at moving debt around, so that's sort of logistics-y, right? Goldman Sachs, which is an actual investment bank, often has no real idea how much money it will have made or lost at the end of a quarter. They can manage some risk, but the prices of stocks are out of their control. In contrast, Enron often met its earning estimates to the cent. I mean, that would have been a red flag to me, I think. But Enron didn't use mark-to-market the way it was intended. (laughs) Instead, Enron used mark-to-market accounting to invent valuations for assets out of thin air and artificially inflate their revenue. First, a lot of times Enron employees would decide the value of a contract, estimating its total future worth without a real process as to how that was done. One critic said it wasn't mark-to-market, it was mark-to-guess, so their revenue was often overstated or outright invented. Second, they were dealing with fixed-price natural gas contracts in a way that was detrimental to Enron long-term. At the moment that the deal was done, they would book the entire value of the contract as revenue based on their estimate of what that would be. If the deal was for a 20-year contract, they didn't spread the revenue over 20 years. It all went into the first year. Even people without accounting backgrounds can see that this might be a problem. In one, they haven't actually gotten the $20 million from the customer because the contract is being paid out over 20 years yet they're taking credit for the entire amount in one year. Second, this method of recording revenue seems to forget that things may change. What happens if the customer defaults on the contract or goes into bankruptcy? And while these things made for a balance sheet that was artificially inflated, it also meant that every year they were starting from zero. You didn't have any income from prior year deals coming in during the new year to cushion your new year numbers, That money had all been booked in that first year. Not surprisingly, not only were they making their numbers look better for their shareholders than they were, but it was also unclear how much actual cash Enron had gotten in the door in any one year. I can appreciate that Skilling had interesting and unique ideas about revolutionizing the oil and gas industry by being the first company in that sector to move to mark to market, but I don't know how they didn't realize in the first few years that it just wasn't working. What's worse about this whole mark-to-market debacle is that Enron convinced their auditors at Anderson and people at the SEC that mark-to-market was appropriate for their energy trading business. This was a recurring theme with Enron. If they could get someone outside Enron to say that something was acceptable, then they did it. They never asked themselves the question of whether they should do it. Then Enron relied on even more complex accounting to adjust their earnings estimates and to move debt off their books to make their financials look better. Complicated financial accounting isn't new, lots of companies do it, but the way Enron did it was particularly egregious. For example, they commonly moved debt off their books to these special purpose entities, 
in the fourth quarter of the year so that the debt would not be on that year's balance sheet, and then when the year ended, they moved it back. Enron also hired people who were entirely unqualified for their jobs and allowed people who worked at Enron to move around to different jobs that they were also unqualified for with regularity. Scaling often said it didn't matter what background a person had. If they were smart, they'd figure it out. While that may be true in some cases, there are some levels of jobs where you have to know what you're doing. Otherwise, everything goes sideways. Finance is kind of one of those jobs, right? Hiring Andrew Fastow was a particular problem. You know, if he'd been hired at a lower level, heck, if they'd hired two securitization guys instead of just one, maybe it would have become clear to Skilling that Fastow had no idea how to properly do his job, and a lot of this mess might have been avoided. There were plenty of people working for Fastow and around the company who knew that Fastow was clueless about what he was doing, especially when he became CFO, but Skilling was convinced that Fastow was making money for the company and, as a result, kept giving him more and more to handle. Note that, one, Fastow wasn't actually making any money, and, two, please pay attention, insurance companies. Sometimes people who seem to be making a lot of money for you are also putting you at extreme risk for a big, fat, expensive mess. Enron's culture was also a mess, and Lay never seemed to address it. As for Skilling, he seemed to encourage it. As I was reading about Enron, I was really surprised at how many senior company employees were, frankly, sleeping with coworkers, often subordinates, skilling included. Bullying in the company was accepted and even encouraged. Favoritism was rampant, especially during the employee review process. Someone at Enron described it as a company full of people who were only out for themselves, with little thought about the health of the company. When you hire type A people who pride themselves on not being team players and that's all you hire, well, let's just say this doesn't surprise me. Compensation was another big issue. Salaries at Enron were generally higher than what the market paid, but your salary wasn't where you made the big money. Like a Wall Street bank, employees who did huge deals that padded Enron's revenues got enormous bonuses. There were no incentives for saving the company money, just making money. In addition, a lot of compensation was also tied to stock price, which meant sometimes people would do just about anything, even illegal things, to keep the stock price high. Enron also seemed to have no strategy in terms of what they would or would not do. While lots of big companies are diversified into lots of different industries, Enron was almost ridiculously so. They were in pipelines, in water, in foreign development, in broadband, in trading gas, serving commercial and retail customers, building an automated trading system, buying stakes in all kinds of businesses like Enron was an investment bank, and even betting on the weather. There were also no checks and balances you would expect at any company. Skilling didn't even sign off on things he was supposed to sign off on, so why should anyone else do it? Shoot, why even bother submitting things to be signed off on? The company had no way to know how much cash they had on hand at any one time or if any of their customers had paid their bills. There was a point where one employee at Enron Energy found hundreds of envelopes under a desk that were payments from utility companies that had never been processed, nearly $10 million worth. Enron didn't even track when their debts came due. As long as the stock price kept going up, they thought none of this would ever catch up to them. But honestly, how could they think that the stock would just rise forever, that they would be able to hit their quite aggressive earnings estimates every single year into infinity? There are plenty of other things that went wrong at Enron, but those were the biggest problems, in my opinion. So why didn't anyone speak out? 
before Enron imploded. When I first saw the documentary The Smartest People in the Room, that was my first in-depth exposure to the Enron story many years ago, I came away with the distinct impression that Sharon Watkins, a woman who worked in finance and confronted Ken Lay about her concerns, that she was the first person and the main person to blow the whistle on Enron. But as I started to read more, it became clear that even from the very beginning of Enron, there were many, many people inside and outside the company who raised the red flag and tried to stop unethical behavior. In a way, that fact somehow makes the entire thing worse for me. That so many people knew that Enron was doing things that could lead to serious issues, and yet the people at the very top of the Enron pyramid never acted on their warnings. Of course, once the journalists started digging, the cracks started to show, and before long, Enron had imploded. As the SEC and DOJ started to investigate and Congress held hearings about what had gone wrong at Enron, it was clear that some people and entities would be criminally charged and some people and entities would be civilly charged and that there would be a lot of lawsuits. And Enron started to look at its insurance policies, hoping that they would help. Frankly, Enron is lucky they had insurance at all. They did have a risk manager who was placing insurance for them on staff. I don't think that was a given, considering how few procedures and processes Enron had in general. However, the risk manager was almost a victim of Jeff Skilling's brutal performance evaluation process. The PRC, as it was called, happened annually and required employees to be rated on a one-to-five scale by a group of managers, most of whom were not from that person's department. Being rated as a one was excellent and usually resulted in a big bonus, Anyone rated five was either let go or encouraged to leave. But here's the thing. The rating system was on a curve, which meant you could only have so many ones in the company. And somebody, well, a lot of somebodies had to be fives. During the PRC meeting in early 1999, Jim Bullion, Enron's risk manager who purchased Enron's insurance, came up for review. While his boss thought he was doing a great job, Others disagreed, saying that he didn't create money for the company and therefore didn't deserve a good rating. As one member of the review committee said, Look, I've got a guy there who did a trade that brought in millions, and what did Bullion do? Buy insurance? Others chimed in, saying that anyone could learn Jim's job, that someone without an insurance background might be even better at it because they would be flexible, whatever that means. Skilling's comment, One, that insurance wasn't rocket science, and two, well, maybe they could do something with this insurance thing. Maybe they could, you know, make money off of it. Maybe they could, you know, underwrite policies for other companies. Yeesh. Luckily for Enron, while Jim Bullion got an okay rating, they didn't let him go. And luckily for Enron, the idea of making insurance a profit center never went any further. Can you imagine? Enron had lots of different kinds of insurance, but I'm only focusing on three here. Directors and officers insurance, crime loss insurance, and surety. But wait, you say. I've been told that surety is a kind of insurance that never has a loss. Well, strap in, because it's a ride. Enron had a directors and officers insurance program with approximately $350 million in total limits. Now, this is a coverage I have never personally underwritten, and... To me, it's kind of a weird coverage compared to things like property or liability. The intent of directors and officers' coverage, commonly called DNO, is to allow a corporation to indemnify their directors and officers against liability, which is a lot different from the coverages I'm used to underwriting. 
It's also a much newer product than general liability or property. Originally, it was invented in the early 1930s as a result of legislation passed in the wake of the 1929 stock market crash. At that time, it wasn't called directors and officers coverage yet. It was called personal financial protection insurance. Only Lloyd's of London offered it, and the policy had two parts, coverage for directors and coverage for corporations. The coverage didn't take off into the late 1960s, and by 1970, about 70% of public companies purchased directors and officers' coverage. But it was still really a London-based insurance product. By the 1980s, U.S. companies started writing DNO insurance, and the coverage expanded and became more sophisticated, partly because there were a lot of claims in the 1980s that caused some of those U.S. carriers to quit writing this coverage pretty quickly. So those that stayed in the market had to get pretty smart about what they were doing. In the mid-90s, there were a couple of things that expanded the DNO market again, the result of a case called Nordstrom versus Chubb, and a piece of legislation called the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. You can look those up if you want, but these two things helped clarify what DNO policies should and shouldn't do and what could and couldn't be covered. The coverage is often referred to as side A, side B, and side C coverage. Fun fact, the reason they use this terminology is that on the original Lloyd's policy, the two coverages offered at that time, A and B, were on opposite sides of the policy, thus side A and side B. I don't think any other insurance product has this terminology. I mean, if you know of one, let me know. Side A provides coverage for loss and defense costs, a.k.a. lawyer's fees, if the company is legally prohibited from indemnifying its directors and officers. There really aren't that many times that it is legally prohibited, a corporation being able to tell its directors and officers that they will protect them in the case they're named in a lawsuit arising out of work they did in their capacity as a director and officer is pretty much required to get anyone to work for you as a director or an officer. But in cases of bankruptcy or when shareholders sue the directors and officers alleging that their actions caused harm to the shareholders, both happened in the case of Enron, the law can prevent a corporation from indemnifying their directors and officers. In that case, the side A coverage applies. Side B coverage provides the same thing, loss and defense costs, when it is legal for the corporation to indemnify its directors and officers. So, This just protects the company from having to pay that money themselves. Side C, which was added in the 90s, indemnifies the corporation when there is litigation arising out of a security law violation. This is usually specific to a shareholder lawsuit against the corporation. All three sides, A, B, and C, usually share one policy limit, and the policy limits are eroded by defense costs, a.k.a. legal fees. So that means that if money is paid out by either side A, B, or C coverage, then the limit of the policy is reduced by that amount. And you could have a situation where side A coverage payouts eat up the entire limit, and then anything you might claim under side B or C would be denied. Since legal fees are generally the primary thing that this policy pays out, it makes sense that legal fees would also reduce the policy limit. This is quite different than what most general liability policies do, where legal fees, aka defense costs, do not reduce the limit of insurance. I should also mention there's also a product called a standalone side A policy, which you can buy that's broader than side A product included in the typical director's and officer's policy. 
you will often see companies buy this in addition to a typical side ABC policy in order to cover things that might be excluded by that policy. Standalone side A coverage is particularly useful in the case of bankruptcy because the standalone side A provides no coverage to the corporation, just individual directors and officers. And what this means in reality is in the case of bankruptcy, any money paid out by a standalone side A policy cannot be seized by the bankruptcy estate. This is going to be important. This is, of course, very simplified. It would take a long time to explain how these work in detail, but when I think about directors and officers' policies, I'm usually thinking about a policy that primarily advances money to be used for legal fees for directors, officers, and the corporation in the case of particular kinds of lawsuits. Another way to think of it, if you're an insurance person, is that a DNO policy is a duty to advance policy rather than a duty to defend policy. DNO has no duty to defend a claim at all. Generally speaking, most DNO policies are triggered by shareholder lawsuits against the corporation. In the case of Enron, that did trigger the side C of the policy. Shareholders sued Enron for making false and misleading statements about their financial status, which then falsely enticed shareholders to invest in Enron. But since many of the directors and officers like Ken Lay, Jeff Skilling, Andrew Fastow, and others were also criminally charged and named in civil lawsuits, the side A and side B part of the policy was also triggered. Enron also had a crime loss indemnity policy. St. Paul Fire and Marine provided a $25 million primary policy, and Federal Insurance, which is part of Chubb, and Great American Insurance provided coverage for some undetermined amount excess of that primary limit. It's hard to say what the total limit might have been. With only two carriers above the primary, I'm thinking maybe 75 to 100 million. It was a multi-year policy, which is interesting, meaning that it covered the period between January 1st, 1997 and January 1st, 2003. The only reason we know anything at all about this policy is thanks to a lawsuit Enron filed against these three companies because they refused to pay out on the policy. The lawsuit argued that the companies had refused to pay on a policy that covered senior staff. And that's interesting because typically crimes committed by executives are excluded from these types of policies. A crime loss policy is generally written to protect a company from criminal activity by employees or by third parties. If the store gets robbed, crime loss policy. If an employee embezzles funds from you, crime loss policy. But as you might imagine, there are a lot of exclusions. For example, crimes committed by executives are often excluded, as are crimes committed by employees. If those crimes committed were, quote, in conjunction with, unquote, business partners. When you look at what Enron did, though, where was the actual crime? Yeah, Fastow made a lot of money off of off-book entities, but was it technically stealing? And of course, he would be considered an executive, so coverage would typically be excluded anyway, though it appears Enron's risk management head, the man that almost got fired for being useless, may have found companies willing to cover executives on some basis. If so, good for him. He deserved a higher ranking. Enron argued that the deal that Fastow and one of his employees, Michael Copper, did with the National Westminster bankers in England was a wrongful act. This is the thing where the three bankers and Fastow shared the proceeds from a sale. Enron said the wrongful act was getting Enron to pay $20 million for National Westminster's interest in a business, but National Westminster had actually agreed to sell this interest to Enron for $1 million. Fastow Copper and the three NatWest bankers distributed the extra $19 million among themselves. 
It's likely the three insurance carriers claimed that Enron misrepresented themselves and even lied on the insurance application, and that because of this fraud, the insurance companies refused to pay. I'll come back to that accusation later. I don't know how much the crime policy paid out because it appears the lawsuit never went to trial. So at some point, Enron and these three companies settled for some amount of money. If St. Paul had put up $25 million and the claim was for something like $19 million, my guess is that St. Paul paid out some, but not all of the $19 million in such a settlement, and the excess carriers paid nothing, but who knows. After Enron filed for bankruptcy, anybody who had a surety bond involving Enron got very, very nervous. Surety bonds are kind of unique insurance products, as in theory, they should never have a loss. Say you are a company that builds things. That would make you the principal in this scenario. The company that hired you to do that work, the obligee, wants to make sure you complete the work you agreed to and that the quality of the work is appropriate and they really do not want to take on the cost to sue you in the future for shoddy or incompetent work. The obligee would then ask the principal to purchase a surety bond from a surety, a.k.a. insurance company. The surety bond becomes a financial guarantee for the obligee that the principal will fulfill the terms of their contract. Should the principal not fulfill the terms of their contract, the surety bond would pay the obligee directly. That's what's considered a traditional or contract surety, but there are also non-traditional sureties, which are more financial. And sometimes they can look a lot more like protection for a debt that needs to be paid. The surety bond in that case guarantees that the debt will be paid. Otherwise, the surety will be paid out. But here's the thing. Underwriting these surety bonds properly basically means making sure there is no way that the principal will go back on the contract or not pay the debt and that the surety bond will never be paid out. While surety bonds are written by insurance companies, there is a long-standing dispute among law and insurance academics as to whether or not surety bonds are actually insurance, since, in theory, there should be no risk taken on the part of the insurance company, the surety. When Enron went bankrupt, it also meant that any debts they had might not ever be paid, and that triggered the surety bonds. And in the case of Enron, there were a lot of surety bonds, about $3 billion worth. As one critic said of the losses at the time, quote, unlike insurance, in which underwriters expect to incur losses, it is supposed to be written on a zero-loss basis. In theory, sureties examine a principal's finances, capabilities, and character before issuing a bond, and if there's any doubt about the principal's ability to perform, the surety will require satisfactory collateral to protect it from loss. So much for theory. Unquote. The bank J.P. Morgan in particular had a real problem. It had about a billion dollars worth of surety bonds that it had purchased regarding an Enron project delivering natural gas. The 11 insurance companies involved in this project argued that they were not obliged to pay because Enron and J.P. Morgan had misrepresented the transactions in question. They'd told the insurance companies these bonds were for actual physical commodities, but in fact, they were loans because Enron had agreed to buy back the commodities later on, likely moving debt off their balance sheet for some time. Enron did this with banks a lot, for example, with those Nigerian barges. So, of course, everyone sued each other. In the end, it seems like J.P. Morgan got about 60% of the money they thought they were owed, about $665 million from the 11 insurance companies that had written the bonds 
which included Travelers, St. Paul Fire and Marine, and Federal Insurance, again, Allianz, CNA, Safeco, Hartford, and Liberty Mutual. I mean, basically just like everybody. And in addition, there were two big issues regarding the insurance that complicated everything, and especially the DNO policy. First, it raised issues about something we call rescission. This is an insurance term. Primarily, if you went out and got an insurance policy and deliberately lied to the insurance company about something important, like that $20 million loss you forgot to put on the application, the insurance company has the option to completely void the policy back to the inception date of the coverage, so it's like that policy never existed. It's a way to protect insurance companies from being completely swindled. Usually, rescission is a result of deliberate fraud. It isn't just a small lie, it's something major. The insurance company wouldn't have written the coverage if they'd known the truth, or they would have written it with different terms or conditions. Most, well, all of the insurance companies participating in Enron's DNO policies believed that they had been lied to about Enron's actual loss exposures, and as a result, they believed they could rescind the policy. I mean, you can see why that might be the case. In order to underwrite a director's and officer's policy, one of the main things you rely on are the financial statements. Enron had been hiding their real financials, hiding their debt, inflating their revenue, on those financial statements for years. But anyway, rescission, voiding the policy, is a big deal, and it's very rarely used. It's extremely hard to prove in a court of law. In this case, the burden of proof is on the insurer, not the insured. The courts typically oppose it unless the misrepresentation is very, very egregious. And in almost all cases, when the insurance company rescinds a policy, the policyholder sues. Frankly, sometimes it makes more sense to just pay the claim rather than having to spend all the money to defend your decision to void the policy. The primary and first excess DNO insurers, Royal Insurance Company of America and St. Paul Mercury Insurance Company, those two companies provided the first $50 million in limit. Each company separately argued they should be allowed to rescind the policy because Enron had made material misrepresentations on the application of insurance. They lied, and that had Enron told the truth, the insurance companies in question would have done something different with the coverage or they would have declined it. If the primary insurance companies were able to win their case, then it was expected that all the other excess policies above them in the tower would do the same. Unfortunately for the DNO insurers, they did not win, and they had to pay. But there was another problem, and that was the bankruptcy. Enron's bankruptcy introduced several problems for insurers. All of Enron's creditors were looking for payment, and the bankruptcy administrators looked for any way to get them that money. That meant that money paid out on Enron's insurance policies might also be seized by the bankruptcy courts and distributed among creditors. Remember, side A, B, and C share one limit, and in my opinion, it was pretty probable that the entire limit was going to be paid out on, and it was, and that the bankruptcy courts would take all that money. If the bankruptcy administrators decided that the money that would have been paid out on the DNO policies belonged to the estate, how would Enron be able to fulfill its obligations to indemnify its directors and officers? What about money that the shareholders might be entitled to? Well, no surprise, they went to court over this. From the court documents, it appeared that originally about $150 million in DNO limits was used to pay for things related to DNO coverage. The remaining limit, $200 million, was earmarked to go into the bankruptcy pool to be distributed to creditors. If Enron hadn't gone bankrupt, well, they probably could have accessed the entire amount for the directors and officers and the corporation unless their insurers had been able to argue successfully to rescind their policies due to fraud. 
And it's entirely possible that in this scenario that might have happened. But given the size of the bankruptcy and the number of outstanding creditors, insurance ended up being on the hook for things they didn't even intend to provide. And this is a good example of a situation that even if the insurers had been in the right, which frankly I think they were, the courts would probably have taken the step of ignoring that, which I kind of think they did, and awarding the money to the bankruptcy estate because of the high profile of the case. I mean, it does happen. Had Enron bought more DNO limits, I suspect that money would have also gone into the bankruptcy pool too, so I mean, that wouldn't have helped. But either way, while some of the money did go to help the various people like Lay, Fastow, and Skilling with their defense, those individuals certainly had to dip into their pockets as well, in some cases, in the tens of millions of dollars. From an insurance versus history perspective, I think history wins here, only because insurance couldn't save Enron and frankly shouldn't have saved it, but also sadly because not a lot has changed since Enron, from an insurance standpoint or anything else. Well, we can look at Enron now and say, that just looked too good to be true. And if it looks too good to be true, we should start asking questions, right? Well, have we done that? I would say not. I mean, there were an awful lot of companies involved in the 2008 housing crisis who sang the praises of their extremely profitable derivatives groups before the crash, and that was too good to be true. I seem to recall some very complimentary articles on, say, AIG's financial products group, but even now, there are companies that could use a closer look, in my opinion, like, say, Tesla, or some financial products that should be more closely looked at, like crypto. Yeah, I don't think we learned our lesson very well. The biggest change to the industry was the passage of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in 2002, better known as SOX. Enron wasn't completely responsible for this law. After Enron, there were several similar financial scandals involving companies like WorldCom and Tyco. SOX was supposed to reduce the number of Enrons in the future by tightening up financial reporting standards, making senior management legally responsible for the accuracy of financial statements, adding requirements around the sale of stock by executives, and several other things. It was a significant law with some very good changes, but it, it wasn't enough. Disappointingly for the DNO market, Enron's demise and the resulting insurance claims only resulted in a short increase in rate before things went mostly back to normal. But that's not a surprise. On the one hand, it would be very unusual for one limits claim for one company to change the entire market. On the other hand, Enron wasn't the only large DNO claim in the early 2000s. But the hard market in general after 9-11 meant that more money came into the insurance market. Hedge funds were particularly interested. And as a result, more companies wanted to write more insurance, which included DNO. This is one of those situations where, for some reason, DNO losses have not directly impacted the market. There have been 115 DNO settlements in the last 20 years where the paid out limits were above $100 million. DNO payouts in general have been increasing, and there is an argument to be made that the higher the DNO tower limit, the higher the settlement requests are, particularly when it comes to shareholder litigation. This leads me to another question that I can't answer. Does DNO increase moral hazard? Does having the insurance increase the potential for loss? Some law scholars believe that it does. Some even advocate for the abolition of DNO insurance, and barring that, that DNO insurance requires significant changes to terms and conditions to mitigate that exposure. As far as I know, nothing on that front has been done. With crime and surety, well, nothing changed. I wouldn't have expected it to. 
The total amount of insurance paid out for Enron, including surety, is estimated at somewhere in the $3 billion range. It was a big hit for the industry, but apparently not a completely catastrophic one. If I were to detail the results of all the different lawsuits and cover the where are they now of all the people involved, it would take hours. So I'll just hit on some of the more interesting or important ones here. Although Enron was bankrupt, there were still some people working there to wind down the company. Enron sold its remaining assets, about $3 billion worth, to pay creditors. The company that remained changed its name to Enron Creditors Recovering Corporation and filed lawsuits against many of the banks Enron had worked with, alleging they aided and abetted Enron's insider breach of their fiduciary duties and perpetrated a massive financial fraud on Enron's creditors. So basically it was the bank's fault Enron was able to get away with it, I guess. Enron also sued Dynagy, and Dynagy sued Enron. Ken Lay, Enron's CEO, was indicted by the DOJ on 11 counts of security fraud, wire fraud, and making false and misleading statements. He was convicted in 2006 on six counts, but before his sentencing, he died of a heart attack. One of the craziest things about this is that his lawyers then went back to the courts and asked them to vacate the judgment to basically overturn it because of something called abatement ab initio, which is a legal doctrine that says the death of a defendant during appeal results in a vacated judgment, a.k.a. he is now an innocent man. Jeff Skilling was indicted on 35 counts of insider trading, making false statements to Enron's auditors, securities fraud, and wire fraud. He was convicted in 2006 of one count of fraud, one count of insider trading, and five counts of making false statements to auditors, as well as 12 counts of securities fraud. He never admitted any fault. He was sentenced to 24 years in prison and had to pay $42 million in restitution to the Enron Pension Fund. It will not surprise you that Skilling appealed his conviction, and his case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. In Skilling v. United States, his lawyer, Sri Srinivasan, argued that the government had applied something called the Honest Services Doctrine incorrectly and that the trial should have been moved out of Houston, where Skilling felt he could not get a fair jury. The Supreme Court agreed with Skilling's lawyer on the Honest Services portion but disagreed with the prejudiced venue argument, and they sent the case back to the lower court, which held firm but reduced Skilling's sentence to 14 years. Skilling served 12 years at the federal prison camp in Montgomery, Alabama, which is considered one of the 10 most cushy prisons in the U.S. He was released in 2019 and tried to get a new digital marketplace for oil and gas investing off the ground. As of 2023, the company is not in business. Andy Fastow was indicted on 78 counts. In the beginning, it appeared he was going to fight the charges with everything he had, even going so far as to hire friend of the pod, David Boys as his lawyer. The DOJ was determined to use Fastow to testify against Lay and Skilling, and as a result, they encouraged this by freezing all of his bank accounts and saddling him with a $5 million requirement to post bail. When Fastow found out that the DOJ was also planning to indict his wife, Leah, who worked in finance at Enron and had been named on some of the SPE deals, he agreed to cooperate. As a result, he was able to make a plea deal that limited his sentence to 10 years. Unlike Skilling, Fastow did admit that what he did was wrong. He was eventually convicted to six years in prison, an additional two years of probation, and eventually this was reduced to five years. He was released in 2011. Fastow apparently works in a low-level clerking position at a Houston law firm, 
and he does some corporate speaking about ethics and accounting integrity, which is, I mean, it's ballsy. In fact, and I cannot believe what is about to come out of my mouth, Fastow spoke at the Professional Lines Underwriting Society's annual DNO Symposium in 2017. Very disappointing, guys. Very disappointing. Somewhere in the area of 20 people at Enron were indicted, and many of them served short prison terms. Arthur Anderson, Enron's auditor, was out of business less than a year after Enron imploded. While most people blame this on Enron, it was also the case that Anderson had been implicated in several other accounting scandals like WorldCom, and the reputational damage Anderson suffered just could not be overcome. This didn't stop the DOJ from indicting Arthur Anderson and some of its employees. In the case of the successful conviction of Anderson, it was eventually appealed up to the Supreme Court, which found that the jury instructions in the original trial were incorrect and the conviction was overturned. I do want to mention some of the actions taken against the banks at Merrill Lynch in regards to that Nigerian thing. Five people were convicted of fraud and conspiracy. Four of them appealed their convictions and the sentences were overturned. I'm not sure why the fifth person didn't appeal. Maybe their conscience wouldn't let them. The bankers involved in the National Westminster deal, where they and Fastow split $19 million in proceeds, were eventually extradited to the United States and convicted of wire fraud in 2006. Dubbed the NatWest Three, the three bankers pled guilty and were given 37-month prison terms. Most of the rest of the banks were part of the lawsuits Enron filed, alleging that the banks made Enron defraud investors. Well, that's my interpretation. And many of them both paid Enron, well, Enron's bankruptcy administrator, lots of money, and also agreed to reduce the amount of money they had submitted claims for with the Enron bankruptcy administrator. For example, Merrill Lynch paid Enron $29.5 million and gave up claims worth $73.7 million. And then they also paid the government $80 million as a penalty for the Nigerian barge business. Barclays, for example, paid $144 million in cash. J.P. Morgan paid $350 million and gave up $60 million in claims, and there were many others. In the end, Enron's creditors got about $0.30 cents of every dollar they were owed. Sharon Watkins, the woman who talked to Lay about the issues she saw in finance in 2001, was named Times Person of the Year in 2002. In 2004, she released a book called Power Failure, and she's now a public speaker and owns a consulting firm. The 20,000 people who worked at Enron had nothing to do with all this misconduct, found themselves not only without jobs, but with retirement accounts that were worth nothing, and pension benefits they suspected would never, ever be paid. Not surprisingly, they sued. Pension plan was eventually given about $321 million and then was sold off to an insurance company for future management. The people who'd lost all their money in the 401ks got a distribution of an additional $350 million. However, they certainly didn't recover all the money they contributed. Bethany McLean, the journalist who wrote the Is Enron Overpriced article, followed that up with a series of Enron-specific reporting that eventually turned into that book she co-authored with Peter Elkind, who was also a writer at Fortune. Also, Peter Elkin wrote a really good book about Elliot Spitzer, by the way. McLean went on to marry the assistant U.S. attorney who prosecuted many of the Enron cases. I'm assuming she met him during the trial, and I, I kind of find that a fun fact. Sadly, it looks like the marriage didn't survive the pandemic. She now works for Vanity Fair, and she's written three more books. After all this, the question remains, did we learn anything? I wish we could say that we did, but again, 
The 2008 financial crisis is still pretty raw for a lot of people, and the issues that led to that crisis and the issues that led to Enron's demise are in some ways quite similar. After the financial crisis, Congress passed Dodd-Frank in 2010. Well, while it was targeted towards different problems, it also introduced some rules that applied to financial reporting, executive compensation, whistleblowers, and rating agencies. Overall, the insurance industry lost about $5 billion due to Enron, and that wasn't just insurance and surety. Insurance companies, as you may know, invest money in other companies, and many of them invested in Enron stock. It's hard to say what kind of actions it would take to really reduce corporate malfeasance and what kind of catastrophe it would take for the U.S. government to really address it going forward. Sox and Dodd-Frank are a good start, but after George W. Bush left office, the DOJ took a huge step back in pursuing corporate prosecutions, instead relying on fines and penalties to discourage wrongdoing. Honestly, if the 2008 financial crisis didn't change things, and it didn't, only one person, a banker at Credit Suisse, was convicted of any charges at all, then I don't think there's much hope that the government will step in wholesale and fix it. However, I do think there is not only an opportunity, but perhaps even a responsibility for insurance to consider in regards to what we can do to reduce corporate wrongdoing. Why do we cover defense for illegal acts, and in some cases, illegal acts themselves? Is this something we need to reconsider or reevaluate? I don't have the answer. Insurance has always had somewhat of a silent governance role in society. While insurance companies are private and public corporations, we do regulate people's behavior in a lot of subtle ways. For now, it's at least clear that some corporations will continue to reward bad behavior and sometimes encourage illegal behavior. And as those actions are brought to light, we can take steps as insurance professionals, as citizens, and as consumers. In the meantime, if I'm left with anything we as individuals can do right now, it's that we should never invest our entire retirement fund with one company. And for some of us in the industry who didn't learn that lesson from what they read in the news about Enron's employees, many of us certainly learned that lesson after the 2008 crisis. If you don't know what I mean, just go online and look up the stock price history of AIG for the past 30 years. But... At least there is a chance that someday it will recover, since AIG is still around. Unlike Enron. Thanks for listening. Show notes and a list of sources and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website, which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording. Mm-hmm.